If there's one thing we need today in our society, it's a biblical view of marriage. We have all kinds of views out there when it comes to the subject of marriage. Um, there's people even that want to marry their pet. Okay, uh, it's just kind of crazy. Uh, that's not what God, you know, you may love your pet, that's fine, but that's not what God envisioned when he created and uh, started the Institute of Marriage. Now, a lot of times when it comes to a series like this, family, marriage, some of you may be single and you're sitting there going, okay, well, I'm just going to check out for the next 45 minutes. Please don't, because eventually you may be married and you can apply these truths, and even if God has gifted you with the gift of singleness, and you'll never be married maybe, you can still run into people that are married. And what a joyous thing it is to be able to bring light to what God says about marriage upon their own relationships. And so it's important to kind of focus in and really understand that this subject matter, marriage and the family, is uh, basic to any Christian's life. It's really basic to the um, in workings of a church, because I really believe our church will only be as strong as the families and the marriages that make that church up. And so it's important that we understand that God has a goal for us in marriage. Uh, we've been looking at um, back in, in Genesis chapter 2. You can turn back there. We'll be reading that in just a second. But there's a lot of people that have different ideas about marriage. Um, a couple quotes I ran across was one person said this, marriage can be compared to a cage. Birds outside are in despair trying to enter, and the birds inside are in despair trying to escape. (laughs) Now, that's a sad view of marriage. God created marriage. Um, Someone else wrote, marriage is when a man and a woman become one. I think we all agree with that. The trouble is, when they try to decide which one. (laughs) And if you're married, you know what I'm talking about. Um, But I think more appropriately than any of those quotes, I liked what Martin Luther said about marriage. He said, There is no more lovely, friendly, and charming relationship, communion, or company than a good marriage. And that is so true. That is so true. And you know what, if we're honest, if we're married here today, I don't think there's anybody here that says, yeah, I, I'm just hoping for a bad marriage. I'm planning for a bad marriage. I want my marriage to stink. No, you're hoping for a good marriage. You want it to be honoring to the Lord, honoring to your spouse. And even when we look around, if you're single here today and you see other people who are married, you want their marriages to be good. I don't think anyone would say, well, I hope their marriage fails. And it's really... Um, crucial and important that we understand what constitutes, what makes up a good marriage according to the Bible, not according to the world, according to the Bible. And so there's no place better to begin than the first marriage, the one that God instituted all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And so if you turn your Bibles, Genesis chapter 2, Verse 18, we can read this. This is what Moses recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit um, concerning the circumstances and the institute of the first marriage. And he lays down some very biblical convictions for us. And these are convictions that not only for Adam and Eve, but 
for our marriage and for everybody else's marriage as well. So let's read. You can follow along as I read our text for us. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord said, It's not good for man, for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This passage, as we started last week, records for us the fundamental, the basic convictions, biblical convictions about marriage. And since some of you are new here, I'm just going to go over what we went over last week real quick. The first biblical conviction about marriage was that it has a divine purpose. Marriage isn't just something that God came up out of thin air. It has a purpose, like God has a purpose in everything he created. Uh, Your marriage has a divine purpose, and that purpose is fleshed out for us here in Genesis chapter 2, and we looked at this last week. Well, what are these purposes? The first one we looked at, the first primary purpose for marriage last week we looked at was relationship, relationship. And we said there in verse 18, it says, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, man, I know that you might struggle with that verse. Well, I like being alone. Well, it just says it's not good for you to be alone. I mean, I enjoy my privacy. I like quiet. I like being on my own, doing my own thing. But God says that's not good. And so you have to bow to the authority of God. He knows us. He created us. And so he knows what's good for us and what's not. And see, this is really a reflection of the relationship, there's that word again, relationship that existed and exists within the Trinity itself. If you stop and think about it, even in this statement, one person of the Godhood is talking to another person of the Godhood. Let us make this in our image. Um, So forever in eternity, there has been a relationship between the person of our God within the persons of the Trinity. And marriage really is to reflect the importance of that relationship. You can't get married and just be two people living under the same roof, living in your own world. That's not a successful marriage. That's not a a marriage that honors God. There's no relationship there. Now, I know, ladies, you probably want more of a relationship than your husbands do in the marriage. That's fine. There's room for compromise there. We need to give people space and everything. But at the same time, You don't get married and then retreat to your opposing sides, and that's how you live out your marriage. That's going to be a miserable marriage because there's not going to be any relationship there. So the first thing was relationship. Secondly, we said that marriage was designed divinely for help. He says there, I will make him what? 
It says a helper, a helper. Now, I'm not going to go into this any more than what we did last week, other than to say next week we're going to talk about, ladies, how you help your husbands, how you can be an assistance to your, your husbands divinely. That's the purpose of marriage. I will make him a helper. Thirdly, we said that marriage was made for completion because down in verses 18 and 22, to 22 it says, I will make a helper, then it says what? Suitable for him. He's going to make a helpmate suitable for the man. Woman was created to complement the man. Did you hear me? Not compete with the man, to complement the man. That's important. Woman was created to complement the man. Now, what do you mean by that? Oh, don't you look nice today? No, I'm not talking about that kind of compliments. It means to correspond, to fit together, to help make up his weaknesses. And yes, men, we do have weaknesses. Would you acknowledge that with me? Yes, we do. And also, to make up hers on the other side. Marriage was designed for completion. So marriage has a divine purpose. The, the primary purposes for marriage are encompassed in those three concepts. If you can just wrap your mind around that relationship, help, and completion. That brings us to the second fundamental conviction that we looked at about marriage. And today, uh, we're going to get more into this. Marriage deserves the highest priority. The highest priority. Marriage deserves the highest priority. Look at verses 23 and 24 of our text. It says there, the man said, now this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they two shall become one flesh. Now, what Moses is saying here, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that marriage initiates a new, more important relationship than any other relationship that you may have. That's very important to understand that. That marriage initiates a new relationship, more important than any other relationship that you may have. Other than the Lord it's himself, obviously. And you see this hinted at in Adam's response to the woman. In verse 23, we don't see it really here in our English language, but in the Hebrew, what Adam is doing here is he's really breaking out in poetry. <laughs> kind of romantic. He sees his wife, and he, he, he works up a poem for her. And, and that's what he really says there in verse 23. This is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's a form of poetry. It doesn't sound like it, but that's really what it is. Now, what's, what's he saying here? Let's just break it down very basically. What Adam is saying here is, wow, there is someone that's a perfect complement for me. He's stepping back, and he's going, this is awesome. I've gone through all these animals that God had created, and I couldn't find one that was complimentary to me. But now, God has given me this compliment. 
And he really wants to know, when it says there in verse 23, the man said, this at last, or this is now. Um, at last, finally, God, this is what I've been looking for. Now I can be complete. Remember, he had all the animals march before him. All those that were nearest to the garden, at least, and he named them. And he found none that could correspond to him. And now, at least, at last, God brings him Eve. And it's, he says, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. See, Eve was of the same substance as Adam. Yet an entirely new and different being. Same substance, different being. And men and women are different. I don't care what people say. They're different. They're different physiologically. They're different emotionally. They're different mentally. They're different in every way. And when people try to make them the same or deny the differences, you're just going against all the evidence and all that Scripture proves to be true. Now, the last two lines of 23 are typical of Hebrew naming. He says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam had found someone who shares in his nature. So he gives her a title. In the English, it's woman. And you can see the, the, the resemblance, man, woman. Well, you see the same thing, ironically, in the Hebrew. The, the Hebrew name, the Hebrew word for man is ish. The Hebrew word for woman is isha. Very similar. Very similar, just like man and woman. And that reflects the reality that they share in the same substance. They share in the same natures. And now in verse 24, Moses begins his commentary. He begins to apply, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the principles of the first marriage to every marriage. He's not just saying, well, this is what happened with Adam and Eve, and it doesn't mean anything to anybody else. He's saying, no, this, this can apply to your marriage, to, to my marriage. And this passage is absolutely crucial because it gives us these basic biblical foundational principles. And by the way, it's repeated three other times in the Scriptures, this same passage. It's repeated in Matthew 19, in Mark 10, and in Ephesians 5. And when you put that together, you'll notice that the words of Genesis 2.24 occur one time before the fall, three times after the fall, one time in the Old Testament, and three times in the New Testament. Well, what does all that mean? It simply means that Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, was God's prescription for marriage. Not just in a perfect world, as Adam and Eve lived in, but also it remains his prescription for a marriage in a fallen world, like we live in. See, people today want to take the Scriptures and change it and make it, quote, relevant to the society in which we live. You don't have to make the Bible relevant. It already is. It's God's authoritative, holy, inerrant word, inspired by him himself, by God himself. Now, here we see two verbs that describe the first marriage relationship. And this text really teaches 
us that marriage is to be superior to all other relationships. Like I said previously, we're to leave and we're to cleave. We're to leave and we're to cleave. We're to leave and we're to be joined are the two verbs. Well, let's look at this a little more closely. First of all, we're to leave. Therefore, it says, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Now, even though Moses gives this command to the man, to the husband, the wife is implied in this as well. And that's true throughout the scriptures. He says that we're to leave our parents. Now, this traditional translation of the word leave suggests that the man would move away from his parents and set up home elsewhere, maybe far away from his parents. But when you think about it, the typical Israelite marriage, in the typical sense of the culture in which this was written, the man continued to live in or near his parents' home. That's just what was happening. It was the the woman who left her home to join her husband. So we need to take a little more look at this word leave. What does it actually mean? In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word leave can be used a couple ways. For example, first of all, Israel's commanded not to leave or forsake in the translation. Um, Not to forsake the poor. There's a command given to Israel. Uh, The Levites were, were giving this. Don't forsake the poor. That is, those who were serving the temple, scattering throughout the land or the covenant. They weren't to forsake any of those things. God, in turn, using the same word, promises not to forsake Israel. He says, I'll never forsake Israel. I think it's preferable here to translate this word leave as forsake. The man shall forsake his father and his mother. Now, remember, in the Jewish culture, honoring parents was very high on the priority list. Uh, There was an obligation uh, next to honoring God, really. And so, for the Jewish person to read these words and hear that you must forsake your father and your mother, that would have been absolutely shocking. They would have read that and said, wait a minute, what are you talking about? That goes against everything culturally we believe in. Well, what's he really saying here? It still applies today. You and I are to forsake our parents. I say that in a relative sense, not in an absolute sense. That's important to understand. This is a common Hebrew form of communication. You remember throughout the scriptures in the Minor Prophets, particularly in Hosea chapter 6, Hosea says this, um, I deserve or I desire rather loving kindness and not sacrifice. Remember where it says that? I'd rather have loving kindness and not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's what God says in the book of Hosea. Now that doesn't mean that God didn't want people to sacrifice. That he didn't want them to obey the clear-cut commands to offer sacrifice. That's not what he's saying. It was, what, a comparative. He's saying, look, mercy ought to be more important to you than the ritual of sacrifice. That's what he was saying. Remember in Luke chapter 16, um, the Lord uses similar words. And he's, he's uh, basically dealing with people who want to be his disciple. A bunch of people are following him. 
And he tells them, look, to be my disciple, you have to what? Unless you hate your father, your mother, you can't be my disciple. Well, what does he mean by that? Is he telling us we should hate our parents? No, because we're told everywhere else that we're to love everyone, including our father and our mother. So it can't mean that we're to hate our parents. Matter of fact, Jesus says we should even love our enemies. So how do we reconcile? Jesus says you can't be my disciple unless you hate your mother and father, even your own family. Well, it's comparative language. What Moses is saying back in Genesis His point is simply this. If you are married, you are to be committed to your spouse. That's the comparison. It looks like you're so committed to your spouse that it looks like you have forsaken your closest blood relatives, your mother and father. See, in in marriage, a man and a woman's priorities change. Those of us who are married, we realize that. We understand that. I remember when I was single, on the holidays, I had nothing to do because I turned down all the invitations for people to invite me over because I was proud to be by myself. I was proud to be single. I'm going to be like the Apostle Paul. I don't need anybody for anything. And people in the church would be gracious. Why don't you come over for Thanksgiving dinner? And I just didn't feel comfortable. So I'd kindly say, no, 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 no. So I ended up with a tradition. I'd drive around, and usually I'd go out from Fremont. I was a youth pastor. I'd drive out... um, on 580 there, out to the I-5. Inevitably, on, on Thanksgiving or Christmas Day, I'd find a couple, a family that's on the road there somewhere on an exit ramp, hitchhiking. And I thought, okay, here's my opportunity. And I'd pick them up, and I'd take them to the hotel and get them some dinner and sit, put them in a hotel for a night. And that was just something I enjoyed doing. Well, when I got married, I had a 13-year-old daughter and a wife and all of a sudden, Thanksgiving comes, and I says, and she's planning for the big Thanksgiving dinner. I said, well, no, 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 we're not doing that. <laughs> we're going to go out the freeway and pick up some stranger. And, <laughs> Trust me, my priorities changed real quick. You know, that wasn't going to be part of my life anymore, at least not with my wife and my daughter. And that made good common sense, right? And so we have to understand that the priorities change once you're married. Before these individuals were married, their first obligation is to their parents. Afterwards, the first obligation is what? To their spouse, to one another. That's what Moses is saying. And so this command to leave, a lot of times, is misunderstood by people. So let me tell you, first of all, what it does not mean. What it does not mean. I have there what it means in your in your outline, but I didn't give you this part, what it does not mean. It does not mean that you should literally abandon and forsake your parents. That's not what Moses is telling them to do. God has commanded that we're still to love and respect and care for elderly parents, even after marriage. You don't just leave them hanging high and dry. Matter of fact, even in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, Paul records this. He tells Timothy, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, Paul is talking about the widows that are to be put on the list, and he says, listen, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them provide for her. It's not up to the church, because he says if a man doesn't provide for his own household, he's worse than an unbeliever. See, we have a continuing obligation to our parents even after marriage. That obligation is to love them, to respect them, to care for them. 
That's what we're called to do. So it doesn't mean you forsake your parents. Secondly, it doesn't mean that we need to move a great distance away from our parents. Oh, I'm getting married. I got to move away. I got to move to another state. I got to leave my father and my mother. In fact, it's possible to forsake your parents in the biblical sense and still live next door to them. On the other hand, it's possible to live thousands of miles away and never have left your parents in a biblical sense. So it's important that you understand what we're talking about here. Wayne Mack writes in his Strengthening Your Marriage book, he writes this, uh, you may not have left your parents even if they are dead. (laughs) So what does it mean to leave your parents? What's Moses saying here? Well, a couple things, four things, actually. First of all, it means, first of all, a change of authority, a change of authority in your relationship. The husband becomes the authority of his own home. That's how God has set this up. First Peter chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Wives are to be submissive to their own husbands. Notice it says own husbands, not just every man, own husbands. And again, we will talk more about that next week when we get into the woman's role. So it means a change of authority. Secondly, it means a change of dependence. What that means is neither spouse, the husband or the wife, should depend on the parents for provisions. Now, if the parents want to help you out, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But please understand, it's your responsibility to provide, the husband's responsibility to provide for his own household. You shouldn't be latching on to mommy's apron strings at the end, and the end of every month because you don't have any money because you're mismanaging whatever you have. So it's the husband's responsibility to provide. It means a change of dependence. And then thirdly, it means a radical change in your relationship to your parents. A radical change in your relationship to your parents. It, it basically has the understanding that you establish a new adult relationship with them. Now, I know you're still their child, but it means you have a new relationship with them now. It means that you're more concerned about your mate's ideas, your spouse's opinions and practices, than those of your parents. That's so important to understand when you come to marriage. It means that you're not slavishly dependent on your parents for their affection, for their approval, even for their assistance and for their counsel. Now, to go to them for those things, there's nothing wrong with that, but to be dependent on them for those things. That would be wrong. And practically, it means that you need to make sure that you eliminate any lingering bitterness toward your parents. I've counseled married couples over the years that, boy, when you unravel everything, what it comes down to is that mom or dad treated one of the, one of the couple, the husband or the wife, in a wrong way, and they're still holding on to that, and they're taking it out on their spouse. They had nothing to do with it because they've never really gotten over it. They've never forgiven. They're, they're still bitter. And they're tied to their parents. And sometimes their parents are long time dead. And they're still affecting them from the grave. God doesn't want that for you. Your marriage is too precious for that. No matter how far away you may be from your parents, practically it means that you should eliminate any lingering dependence on them for anything. 
It means you'll stop trying to change your mate simply because your parents don't like the way maybe he or she is. See that all the time. Well, the fourth thing is it means to leave basically means to begin a, a primary, a new primary relationship. It means your relationship to one another now takes priority over your relationship with your parents. Um, do you take more care to preserve your relationship with your lifelong college friends or your biggest client or your parents or maybe your blood family than you do with your own spouse? That's a dangerous place to be in. Our relationship with our mate is to be superior, first, above all others. And by the way, this is not just a warning to the married couple, but it's also a warning to the parents. (laughs) As our children prepare to leave home and to marry, we should be preparing our children to leave and to be joined to their spouses. And if they're married, we shouldn't try to run their lives even though sometimes we want to. <laughs> and I know Ambika and I have tried to live by this with our daughter and her husband and three grandchildren. And, you know, kids sometimes, I think they tried it once or twice, you know, but early on, you know, well, you know, I don't know. Grandpa, can we do this? Well, what's his mom and dad? Well, they're not here. You know, we don't need to go there. We don't need to ask mom and dad. Well, no, yeah, we do. Because you're really under their authority. And so it's important that they learn that lesson early on. Wayne Mack um, gives good advice in his book. He says, you must allow the young husband to be the head of his home, to make decisions for himself, to look to his to look to his wife, not you, speaking to parents, as his primary responsibility and helper. You must encourage your daughter, in this case, to depend on her husband, not you, for guidance, help, companionship, and affection. Um, We're commanded to forsake our parents. Well, the second verb here is not just to forsake, but also to be joined or to cleave. It says there, be joined to his wife. This Hebrew word literally means to be glued to. To be glued to. Now, if you've ever taken two pieces of wood, sometimes I like to work with some wood, and you you make something, you've got to glue them together, and you put a clamp on it. It's amazing how strong the bond of glue can be between two hard objects. I mean, sometimes when you pull them apart, the glue joint doesn't break, but the wood breaks. The wood peels away from itself. That's the kind of joining together that we're talking about. That's the kind of cleaving that we're talking about. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting word. It's used in 2 Samuel 23, where one of David's mighty men, Eliezer, we went through this when we went through it on Wednesday night, um, we're told that his hand clung to his sword because he held it so tightly for so long in battle. It was stuck literally to his hand. That's the idea. Or it's used in Genesis 34, where we're told Shechem's love for Dinah was so great that his soul stuck to Dinah. That's what we're talking about. It really suggests two things. It suggests passion, and it suggests permanence. Passion and permanence. That should characterize our marriages. We have to understand that we are glued to our spouses. 
We're to be glued to our spouses. And that's why he says there what he says in verse 24. The result of leaving your parents and of being glued to your spouse is what? Is that you become one flesh. Now that refers to the sexual union in marriage. 1 Corinthians 6, we're getting there, speaks about that. But Moses is saying the two shall become one flesh. So the description of one flesh obviously has at its core the the sexual union in marriage, but becoming one flesh is more than just physical. One flesh refers to a complete unity of parts, making a whole. There's a lot of interesting words in the Old Testament for the word one. In Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema the great saying that Israel, we, we hear this all the time, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is what? Is one. And yet God is what? Three persons. Three persons in one. So it's different persons coming together to form unity. And in Numbers 13, it's used of a cluster of grapes as one cluster, even though there's multiple grapes in the cluster. So it's the idea that two parts come together to form one complete whole. And it describes not just the physical aspect of marriage, but the spiritual and emotional relationship of marriage. I mean, sometimes you can see this happening when you're in a conversation with a third party and you're both talking and you find yourself finishing each other's sentences. It's like, wow, that's what I was just going to say. Why? Because... Over the years, you've just become one, one, as God desires you to be one. It's no longer he or she, but it's we. And so it really speaks of the, the reality of sharing everything in total intimacy. That kind of two parts becoming one, it's difficult, is it not? To achieve. Why? Because of sin. (laughs) Because of our sinfulness. Because we want to do our own thing. We want to be me, not we. (laughs) And so it's important that we remind ourselves that we have to die to ourselves each and every day. The physical relationship, instead of, is really a great barometer of the condition of a marriage. That's kind of a problem that some people see when couples come and they complain well there's no there's no physical relationship here uh, well it goes deeper than just a physical relationship there may be some emotional or relationship issues and that's why he says there in chapter 2 verse 25 and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed that picture is the perfect condition that existed between adam and eve it was the fruit of their perfect love for one another They sought what they do immediately after their sin. They sought to what? Cover themselves. Why? Clearly part of it was a sense of guilt that they felt before God. But there's another component here as well. As soon as they sinned, they were no longer comfortable with each other. And what did they do? They put on some fig fig leaves to try to hide from each other. 
One writer puts it this way, when sin entered the picture, their openness, transparency, and total oneness was destroyed. I mean, see, as Christians, it should be our goal in marriage to recover the reality of what it means to be joined together in unity, physically, spiritually, emotionally, two parts becoming one. The bottom line really is this, is that our goal should be to make our marriages superior to any other human relationship. You have to make it a priority. It doesn't just happen automatically. Simple quiz here. This exists in your marital relationship. Are there people in your life whom you know better, enjoy more, spend more time with, talk to more than you do your own spouse? If the question is yes, your marriage to that extent is not the priority in your life. Second question, do you spend more time in a typical week pursuing your own interests, activities, or hobbies than you do cultivating a better relationship with your spouse? That reveals, really, the priority of our own marriage. Now, we're not going to have it perfect all the time. There, you know, it's ebbs and flows. But the goal should be that we desire to have a marriage that is honoring to the Lord. Well, what are some distractions What are some distractions, let's keep it practical here, from keeping marriage what it ought to be in our own lives, um, that primary human relationship? What are some things that can pull us away from that priority? Um, These aren't like inspired things. These are just things that I thought of. Uh, First of all, you might call them enemies of a priority of the marriage. First of all, I I put their um, uh, career or work career or work. That's a big one, especially for men. Um, your work, your, your job can be an incredible enemy to your relationship with your wife. You, you need to just be aware of that. It doesn't mean you don't work, but you just have to, it's just the way we're geared. You know, we want to go to work, we want to get things done, we've got to, and that's just who we are. And so we have to kind of build some cautions in there because I guarantee you your company will suck the life out of you if they can. They don't care. And they'll pay you lots of money to do it. <laughs> you know, and so, but what's going to happen? There's been a lot of men who've been very successful in business but lost not just their own family, their relationship with their wife, but their relationship with their kids. But in the end, even their own lives, they're driven to such despair and they had everything that somebody in this world would want to achieve. So you have to keep that in mind. Secondly, another distraction from the priority of marriage is general busyness. You know, sometimes, you know, whether, you know, and this is where I take my hats off to the ladies. You know, you talk to some of the wives in our, even in our church with kids, you know, it's, how was your week? Oh, well, it was good. You know, I had, well, I had the soccer thing, and then I had to do the laundry, and then you know, I cleaned the house, and then I went out to the basketball thing, and then I had softball. And I mean, it's like, whoa, you do all that stuff? Oh, yeah. And it goes up 10 times when school begins. You know, you think it'd be, it'd be a blessing, you know, the kids in, in, in class a couple hours a, a week or a couple hours a day, but sometimes it becomes even more busy then. And so general busyness, it doesn't mean those things are bad, but it even happens with church stuff. 
It even happens with church activities. It even happens in ministry. With, you get so busy with ministry, you forget the God you're serving. And that's why it's, it's important to, you know, that's why we don't have Bible studies every night of the week. We have a Bible study on Wednesday night. We encourage you to come out. I mean, here in the Bay Area, it's hard even to do a Sunday night service. Some people say, why don't you do a Sunday night service? It's very easy. Nobody would come. I'd be here teaching to myself with maybe two or three people. Why? Because people are just too busy. That's just the way it is. It's sad, but it's, it's a reality of life. And so you have to stop and you have to realize general busyness can be a big distraction. You know, we're all busy. We all got things on our schedules, but we all got the same amount of time. We can choose not to be so busy. We can simplify our life. But whatever you do, don't sacrifice your marriage on the altar of busyness. Thirdly, third distraction that keeps marriage from being the supreme relationship is, I'll just say it, (laughs) in-laws. In-laws. This is one of the top three counseling concerns when it comes to marriages. Um, And there are two really great dangers when it comes to in-laws. The first is just spending too much time with them and not enough time with your spouse. The second thing is talking to your in-laws negatively about your spouse. That can definitely erode the priority of marriage in any relationship. You don't ever want to do that. Um, So that being said, the last thing here is if you have children, (laughs) you understand this one, uh, children can easily become a distraction to allowing you to have a good marriage. You say, well, wait a minute. There are children. Exactly. But they can become a um, a very kind of energy-draining, time-draining pull on your lives to the point where you don't have anything left for your spouse. Why? Because of the, the sheer noise level. I mean, when they don't get what they want, what happens? They, 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 they communicate it to you. They're giving you feedback. And it's easier just to say, oh, okay, we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll do this, we'll do that. And you placate your children rather than discipline your children, and you end up with kids that are running the home. And we'll be talking about that in a couple weeks, how that looks. I mean, when you think about it, it's basically the, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And I, I think we could all agree that the children are the squeakiest of all. So, you know, as important as children are, and as important as we, that role we have to shepherd their little lives toward Christ, you have to remember they're only in our, harm, in our homes for about 18 years. That's it. Maybe a little longer, but usually that's about it. And then they're gone. So don't let your kids distract you from your marriage. I've seen so many couples, man, they spend all their time doting over their children. And then all of a sudden they wake up one day and all their children are gone. And they look at each other and go, who are you? (laughs) I don't even know you. And it ends in divorce. Because they're not willing to put the time in to make marriage the priority even when the children are in the home. Well, what are some you know, practical ways then, 
looking at the, the flip side here, to continue to make your marriage a priority. Um, because we, we want to make that. We want, we want our marriages to remain a priority. First of all, commit yourself to growing in your relationship with Christ. This is so important, and people overlook this. And this, this happens in marriages. Sometimes people are reading marriage books and counseling books more than they're reading the Bible. And you wonder why they got issues in their spiritual lives. You need to be committed to growing in your relationship with Christ. Commit yourself to do that. A good Christian marriage is based on a, a mutual walk with the Lord. We're going to see that in Ephesians 5 in a couple weeks. It tells us about how wives would relate to their husbands, how husbands would relate to their wives. But it says basically there in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. Be continuously filled with with the Spirit, be controlled by God's Spirit, not your own selfish flesh. Flesh. So if both of you are desiring to honor the Lord and honor His Word, and you're growing closer to the Lord, I mean, you know, it's kind of like two sides of a triangle. As people grow closer to the Lord, they grow closer to each other. That's really what happens. Well, the second practical way you can make your marriage a priority is to develop a we mindset. We, we mindset. Now, most of us don't have a problem having a me mindset, but we need to develop a we mindset. And I'm so blessed sometimes when I'll ask some of the guys in the church, hey, you want to do this, you want to do that? And sometimes I'll say, well, let me check with my wife. That's not a, you know, mamby-pamby thing to do. That's a wise thing to do. That's, That's letting them know that, hey, well, wait a minute, I do have a relationship that's more important than having lunch with you. (laughs) And that's my wife. Nothing wrong with that. And so we need to be aware of that. Now, on the other hand, I've seen some relationships between a husband and a wife where, unfortunately, the man takes no leadership whatsoever and the woman, you know, runs over him with the the treads of her souls every day. And the poor guy's beaten down so much, you know, he couldn't even raise his hand. That's not good either. So you have to really have that balance, that we mindset. Thirdly, spend time together. That's kind of obvious, spend time together. I mean, it doesn't have to be, you know, it can be doing whatever you want to do together. Some of you like to hike, we'll go hike together. Some of you like to go out on boats or go out fishing or sit in front of the TV, whatever you want to do together. There's no rhyme or reason to it, but spend time together. And make it a priority. Just yesterday, we went over to, we drove over to Oakland. My wife wanted to get some stuff at this uh, kind of Indian marketplace over there. Trinidad, Jamaican kind of stuff. And all kinds of interesting food in there, let me tell you. But... uh, um, I mean, they had these, these fish in this, like, barrel. I walked over. I thought it was like a, a, like a weed or something, right? I pick it up. I'm, I asked the guy I was wearing, what's this thing? He goes, oh, that's, that's salt fish. That's a whole cod fish. 
He goes, that's very expensive. That's like $60. I put it down. I'm like, that $60 looks like a rotted, dried up piece of dead fish you'd find on a beach somewhere. Oh, no, this is, this is really good. And he told me how you prepare it and everything. And I thought, wow, you know, I learned a bunch of things. But we, we spent a couple hours over there, and we went to a little restaurant afterwards. And now, let me tell you, you know, it was, I didn't wake up Saturday morning going, hey, dear, can we go to the Trinidad place over in Oakland, of all places, and, and let's, let's spend the time, you know, smelling these fish and doing this. That, that wasn't even on my radar, okay? So, but we did. We spent time together. We had a, I think we had a good time. We had a good time together. And so it takes effort to do that, especially for guys. Well, there's a third fundamental biblical conviction here about marriage. We need to understand not only does marriage have a divine purpose, not only should it be our greatest priority, but thirdly, it has an inherent permanence. This is so important. Marriage has an inherent permanence. Look at verse 24. It says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. See, not only is this new relationship of marriage superior in kind, but it also is superior in permanence. The Lord uses terms here, the terms forsake and be joined in the context of a covenantal relationship with Israel. That's really what he's doing. It suggests that God sets our marriages as covenants. That's why we call it the covenant of marriage. He states it very specifically. Look over in in Malachi, the end of the Old Testament there, Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. Now, this is speaking of God's ideal, okay, the permanence of marriage. Now, obviously, in a fallen world, you're going to have divorce. You're going to have people to separate from their marriage. Okay, that's where God's grace, that's where God's mercy comes in. Sometimes those relationships are restored. Some of them shouldn't be restored, frankly. And the Bible in Corinthians even gives us some guidelines on that, and we'll be looking at that when we get back into 1 Corinthians. But um, here in Malachi, it tells us here in in chapter 2, verse 13, it says, and the second thing you do, you cover cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offspring or accepts it with tears the favor of your hand. And he says there in verse 14, well, why, why doesn't God accept my offering? Why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and your wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking, God's godly offspring. So guard your, yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to your wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his, uh, his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. What's he saying? He's saying that marriage means something. Marriage is a priority. It has a permanent, a permanence to it. Um, now, God's very clear about the issue of hating the separation of marriage. 
about what God has joined together. In Mark 6, um, or Mark, Mark 10, 6, uh, Jesus said this, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and the two shall become one flesh. There it is, one flesh. They become one flesh. And then he says down in verse 9, Therefore, what God has joined together, what's it say? Let no man separate. That, 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 that's the, the permanent bond of marriage in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 7, verse 2, it says, The married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. And only if she dies is she released. In 1 Corinthians 7.39, it says, The wife is bound as long as her husband lives. So, you know, sticking with your spouse is not about your feelings. You know, I've counseled couples over the years, and, well, we, we just feel God wants, you to get a divorce, wants to, uh, us to get a divorce. And my answer is always the same. You know, I really don't care what you feel. Well, what do you mean? We, we don't feel we love each other. I don't care. It's irrelevant. Are you married or not? Well, yeah. Well, then you just need to be obedient. The feelings that come, if you just simply obey, it's about commitment. It's about promises. It's not about some animal magnetism you have for each other. See, and that's, we think that somehow divorce is going to settle all that. No, it won't. It won't. Now, does divorce happen? Sure, it does. It's a tragedy. And sometimes, frankly, biblically, there's a reason for divorce. And we'll be talking about that in in our studies. But it's not God's ideal. So pursuing divorce so that you can discover some kind of inner peace or self-fulfillment is not only unbiblical, but it's just plain contrary to the fact of Scripture. There was a report out called, Does Divorce Make People Happy? And they examined all this data. They examined 5,232 married adults. They interviewed them in the, the late, back in the 80s. 645 of those 5,200 reported being unhappily married. First of all, that's encouraging that the number wasn't higher than that, but the truth is, only 645 of the 5,200 reported that they were unhappily married. Five years later, they interviewed these people again. In that five-year span, some of these people who were so unhappily married had separated. Others had divorced. Others had divorced and remarried, and others had stayed together. The results were astounding. Of those who said their marriages were unhappy, they were unhappily married. Two-thirds of those who stayed married said five years later they were actually happy. That's two-thirds. In some cases, the issues here were serious issues. And of those who were rated their marriages being unhappy but stayed together, nearly 80% consider themselves happily married 
and much happier five years later. So, you know, marriage is meant to be permanent. Marriage is meant to be something that lasts at least as long as we're here on this face of this earth. It's not about how you feel toward one another. It's about being obedient to the vows that you made and getting the help if you need it in your, in your marital relationship. Get the help you need. There's nothing wrong with going to a biblical counselor every couple years as a couple just to make sure there's no issues going on. Nothing wrong with that at all. Usually biblical counseling's free. You know, it's, it's better to talk about the, the issues before they become serious issues than to just kind of turn a blind eye to them. Well, a couple things here, a couple practical ideas for making your marriage permanent. First of all, take your marriage covenant seriously. Take your marriage covenant seriously. You made a legal binding promise on the day that you were married. God takes it seriously. You better. Christ said, what God hath joined together, let no man separate. Secondly, this is just a practical thing that, that when it comes to, to counseling. Don't threaten divorce when you're in that heated argument. Don't, don't use the D word. It's just not a good thing, no, not a good place to go. Um, because you're, you're showing when you do that, you're really not valuing marriage as God values it. Thirdly, don't make or stay friends with those who take divorce lightly. There's some people who don't hold their marriage near and dear, and they don't really care. And, uh, you know, be careful the company you keep, because they're ideology become your ideology very quickly. Number four, don't let conflict remain unresolved. Uh, Paul says, don't let the, the sun go down on your wrath. We'll be talking about that in the coming weeks. But, you know, as, as much as you can handle it, don't go to bed angry at each other. It's just not worth it. It's not worth it. Number five, build hedges to protect your marriage. Build hedges. What do you mean? Well, you know, there's some very basic things. Men, as much as you can avoid it, try not to be alone with another female who's not your wife. That's just not real smart. Um, especially on an ongoing basis. I remember when we were looking for a, possibly getting me a secretary here, and in the elders meeting I said, well, you know, yeah, Mbika's willing to do that. And uh, someone mentioned, well, shouldn't we take applications for that, for that uh, position? I said, what do you mean? I said, I'm not spending any time down here with anybody other than my wife for 8, 12 hours a day alone. Are you serious? Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, definitely a good idea. You've got to build those kind of hedges into your, into your marriage. There's a guy by the name of Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, B.B. Warfield, he's known by. For almost 34 years, B.B. Warfield taught at Princeton Theological Seminary. He was a world-renowned theologian. In fact, all of his books are still in print. A lot of people don't know this about B.B. Warfield. 
is that at the age of 25, he married Annie Pierce Kincaid. And for their honeymoon, they went to Germany in just a few weeks after, after their wedding. And she found herself caught in the midst of a terribly fierce storm. Lightning struck her, but it didn't take her life. It simply paralyzed her for the rest of her life. For the next 39 years, Warfield patiently cared for Annie until her death in 1915. Because of her extraordinary needs, Warfield seldom left his home for more than two hours at a time during all those years of marriage. He loved her, he cared for her deeply with all of his heart. I pray that as B.B. Warfield cared for his wife, that God would make it possible for our husbands to care for their wives. May God help us to follow his example and keep ourselves faithful until death. Father, we thank you for your wonderful gift of marriage. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your word. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness as your children for sinning against you and even our own spouses at times by following our own wisdom, following our own wants, our own desires. Help us to commit ourselves to following you as the pattern that you've laid down in Genesis. Lord, I pray today for the person who may not be in Christ. Your word is powerful. You can bring conviction on the human heart. I pray today that there would be a day that they would come to know Christ, that you would draw them to yourself, show them their need of a Savior in the midst of their sin. Help our marriages to be strong and to be honoring to you. We thank you. Pray your blessing upon our fellowship time and our food across the way after our service today. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen, amen.